this time on the Jewel Show podcast. October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and author and Pastor Bill Westover sheds light on how we can ease the burden of those serving us spiritually. Bill, good morning. Thank you so much morning. for being with us. How many good morning, cups? Jules. How are you doing today? You know what? I'm on my sixth cup of coffee already, so it should be interesting. <laughs> I-, I see you're not doing any coffee there. I'm a sweet tea person. I do not drink coffee. I think it's from the devil, so I just stay away from it. I can't stand the smell of it. <laughs> my wife drinks it. My kids drink it. <laughs> well, you know what, Bill? I, I love it. I love that um, we're actually doing this interview through Zoom, so you won't be able to smell my delicious coffee. And I'd Thank be all you. of it. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So we are talking today with um, Bill Westover. Now, Bill, you just wrote a book, A Clergy Stress Causes and Cures, which is so timely. But I think the timing of God, because when you were writing this book, you had no idea all of this was going to be coming down the pipeline and all the incredible amount of stress that our pastors are under, um, the congregation, the division within the church um, body, um, with all of our churches. I think all of us can say like, yeah, there's been so many debates and and infighting. And we'll get to that. I want to I want to really kind of talk to you about how God called you into the ministry, how he led you to write this book and um and how you are seeing the providence of God that you would have written this book and this is probably going to be um just extremely needed right now for pastors and for congregations, right? Exactly. Well, I actually I'm the son of a pastor and was called into the ministry under him, saved under my father. But I ran from God's call, and uh, that's a whole time for a whole nother show. I eventually entered the ministry, and I was a staff pastor for several years, including with John Maxwell uh, out in San Diego, and uh, wound up leaving uh, that church and went to a small uh, church in, the, in Los Angeles County. It was a struggling church, typical church of about 50 people. They'd had infighting and all that sort of thing. But God used us to turn that church around and it began to grow back. This was back in the early 90s. Focus on the family was starting a ministry, nationwide ministry called Pastor Appreciation Month. Which is so October. My, yeah, exactly. Another and reason so why I brought you in. My uh, my congregation took that to heart and, and every year started recognizing me in October and giving me gifts and, and so forth. And one year, by this time, we were in two services. And uh, one year we had the first service and then the second service was completely packed and there were people there from the first service. And I thought, what in the world is going on? And uh, they had a puppet stage set up on the platform and they ushered us up onto the platform. Wait, 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 Bill. I like how you just blew past there. There was a puppet stage on, you know, Normal, normal Sunday morning. <laughs> we had we have a puppet ministry, and uh, they had because you're about a ventriloquist. 20... Pardon me. You're a ventriloquist. Yes. Well, I'm trying to keep that a secret. <laughs> I'm getting a highlighter. Had... I'm highlighting that. That is so cool. Okay. <laughs> so uh, they sang one of the songs they did was "Thank You for Giving to the Lord." Love that song. And so we were just bawling our eyes out, and everybody's crying. And then all of a sudden, they start playing the Hawaii Five O theme song, and two life-size puppets come running down the aisle in Hawaiian shirts and skirts and coconuts and the whole thing. And the church presented us 
with an all expense paid trip to Hawaii wow. for pastor appreciation uh, day. And didn't even see was, it coming. Wow. It, I've told that story so many times and people cannot believe that my church did that. That's the way churches ought to be. It was a love relationship between us and the church, uh, between the congregation because of the relationships that we built over the years and the way God had blessed. Well, fast forward, I wind up going to a church uh, in the Midwest and it was an urban church and it had, it had been struggling. It was a much larger church. They'd gone into a building program and all this sort of thing. They'd started a Christian school. And long story short, Jules, I wound, wound up staying there for 14 months. It was just a meat grinder. I couldn't sleep. I was having nightmares that people were chasing me and trying to kill me and catch me in traps and with ropes and all that kind of stuff. And it, they, my family was attacked. I was, it was just awful. And so I quit without having another job to go to. And that really was the genesis of my research and the book that I wrote. It was a complete contrast between a church where we loved each other and God, we worked together and God blessed it so mightily. And then going to a church where there was so much conflict and so much infighting, I couldn't take it anymore. And there are far too many pastors, Jules, that are experiencing the latter and not the former. And that's one of the things I think your audience uh, needs to understand is the reality for pastors is that 70% of pastors leave the ministry with lower self-esteem than they had when they started. Wow. And that was what I was going to ask you, because you went from this high, high of feeling loved, being productive, seeing the fruit of the ministry expand to then all, then all of a sudden being at the lowest of your ministry of, of feeling attacked and defeated. So how did you not take that personally? I did take it personally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I assumed, I didn't know if you were a machine or a robot, you know, so. I mean, my daughter, my teenage daughter at that last church, uh, at the, the church uh, in the Midwest, I went into her bedroom one night and she had a sign on the back of her door that said, I don't care what they say. And I knew that when my kids are being attacked and my wife is being attacked, one Sunday, uh, my wife told me after church, she said she was bawling her eyes out. She was in tears. She said, you can come to this church next week if you, if you want to, but I'm not. So I knew we were having serious issues. You know, I, I thought, well, I can bear the brunt of this and I'll get through it and all that. But when you're, they're starting to hit your family, that's, uh, it's, it's, that's going too far. But isn't it neat to see how God used this? Yes. That yes. he used your pain to help others. And you did a huge amount of uh, research. Would you kind of unpack that for me? What, what, what you did to compile all this? I actually, it's called qualitative research where you uh, find people, you, you have a desk segments like I, I didn't want to do mega churches and I didn't want to do really small churches. I wanted to hit the sweet spot where uh, churches of like 125 to 500 and pastors of different ages, pastors of different ethnicities. So I, I interviewed a black pastor, interviewed female pastors. And I know if you're a Southern Baptist, you know, you're kind of uncomfortable about female pastors. But the point is, I wanted to get a broad spectrum of input of people and their experiences. And out of those interviews, 
I just asked two simple questions and let them tell their stories. And out of that came six major stressors uh, that pastors experience and then 11 coping strategies that they can use to moderate those stressors. Well, Bill, I got to know, what were the two questions you asked? Basically, I just asked them what stress, if they had experienced stress in their ministry and how that had played out, what, what they had experienced that caused the stress, and then how they moderated, how, how, how did you cope with uh, the stress that you endured? And the amazing thing about it was uh, I wound up with three different categories of pastors. Those that had five or fewer coping strategies were either out of the ministry or they were changing churches all the time. Those that had anywhere from six to seven coping strategies, they were on the cusp of going either way. They could be out of the ministry or they could learn to add more coping strategies. And those that had eight or more coping strategies had long tenures uh, at their churches. They had a better quality of life. And so that to me was striking that everybody has these stressors. That's not unusual. I'm not trying to make it seem like we need to pity pastors. Everybody has stress in their lives, but it's just a little more, how can I put it? It's just a different environment when you're dealing with Christians and you're a pastor and the kind of stress that you experience, you've got to figure out and have a handle on the ways that you moderate that if you're going to have any kind of quality of life and enjoy your ministry and not be out of the, out of the ministry. So when you ask those two simple questions, you said you were able to come up with six stressors. Can you hit on those for us? Yes, ma'am. One of those was change. Everybody experiences change. And when obviously when you have a new pastor come into a church, uh, there's change. Herb Rebus, uh, pastor down in Jacksonville, said people only like two pastors, the one they had and the one they're going to have. Some people just don't manage change well. And a lot of times they resist change because there's misunderstandings or there's fear of the unknown, the trade-offs that they have aren't worth it. There's sometimes they're just a lack of respect for the leader. They don't like the leader that they have. Secondly, there's leadership issues. And if you don't have the right match, if the pastor doesn't have the right mission fit, uh, sometimes uh, he doesn't what, like what I did at the church in California, I thought that would work at the church in the Midwest and it didn't, you know, it didn't jive. So when I moved down here to South Carolina, I went, I moved a little slower. And so I made sure I understood the culture, understood the history of the church. The pastor's got to be able to adapt his leadership skills and abilities for what the church needs. Thirdly, conflict. Uh, that's conflict. Um, Max Lucado said conflict is inevitable, combat is optional, right? So almost half of terminations and resignations for pastors are caused by a group of 10 or fewer people. Can you believe that? 10 or fewer. Exactly. And the top five conflicts are pastoral leadership. People, people don't like the pastor being the leader. Finances, how the, how the finances are managed. I had one pastor in the study. Uh, was confronted by some leaders, falsely confronted about finances, and it led to a four-hour congregational meeting, and he had all his ducks in a row, and they left the meeting, and he was still the pastor. But you have fights over leadership, finances, 
have you ever been in a church, Jules, where there was worship conflict? What? <laughs> yes. Are we going to sing hymns? Are we going to sing yes. chords? Yes. Are we going to have a praise band? Are we going to have the choir? There's also staff issues. And then every time there's a building program or renovations that are done, that's a source uh, of conflict. And then there are expectations. The South Carolina Southern Baptists, uh, State Convention Southern Baptists, we lead the nation or, or have led the nation in the number of forced terminations by pastors and also the number of suicides. We, when I first came down here, we had eight pastor suicides in eight years. I was at a pastor's conference a couple of years ago and a pastor was there from Tennessee and he had just learned of a pastor friend of his that had committed suicide. He hung himself in the baptistry and the people walked in on Sunday morning and found him hanging from the baptistry with a note that said, you finally got what you wanted. You know, you have external pressures or expectations that people have of a pastor. And if the pastor doesn't meet those expectations, people get miffed and they get a bee in their bonnet, whatever you want to say, and they, they hold a grudge against the pastor or they, they want to get rid of him. But there's also the intrinsic, past, uh, intrinsic expectations that we have as pastors because we have a divine call, Jules. There's always that pressure Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I preaching the way God wants me to do? Am I leading this church in the direction that it wants to go? I mean, that's, that's incredible pressure for a pastor to experience. And then uh, there's also crises. In the book, I talk about one pastor who had a stalker in his church, a female stalker. Another guy, his church was burned to the ground. His 100-year-old church was burned to the ground, and they started the fire, the arsonist started the fire on his desk and he lost everything. Another pastor had an estranged son that had run away from home. I even had another pastor that had contemplated suicide. His family walked in. He was sitting in a dark room and been sitting in a dark room for three hours with a loaded gun. And his family found him sitting there and basically saved his life. And he went to a psychiatrist and, and got the help he needed. And then the final stressor is loneliness. According to Barner Research, 71% of pastors are frequently lonely and half of pastors suffer from depression because we don't have friends, Jules. Well, that, that's, that's so interesting. That was one of the major things that I starred I wanted to talk to you about because that seems, it's just hard to, it's just hard to believe because I'm not a pastor, so I'm, um, I'm part of the congregation, but it always seems like everybody, there's a line wanting to talk to the pastor every Sunday. All right, more with Jules and Bill Westerfer coming up on The Jules Show podcast in 30 seconds. A new episode of the Finding Joy podcast is available now. We'll have a chat with the newest member of our staff, Amy DeGraff. And her husband, Kevin, the burrito conquistador, for a new segment called Will It Burrito? Today, I'm going to do a peanut butter, banana, pepper, honey, and pickles burrito. Check out the Finding Joy podcast. Find it under the On Air tab at thejoyfm.com or anywhere you subscribe to find podcasts. Now back to the Jewel Show podcast. Um, I'm part of the congregation, but it always seems like everybody, there's a line wanting to talk to the pastor every Sunday. According to Barner Research, 71% of pastors are frequently lonely and half of pastors suffer from depression. That's the difference. There's the pastor and there's the person, right? And the guy that was, uh, I'll take the guy that kind of contemplated suicide. He, he put it beautifully. He had been 
an insurance agent, very successful insurance agent, had all the toys, beautiful home and all that stuff. And he had volunteered and worked at churches various times and finally answered the call to full-time ministry. His church grew. And when I was interviewing him at the time of this, the study that I did, he said that I am so lonely. He said, when I was an insurance agent, he said, I could introduce myself to somebody and say, hey, I'm Joe. I'm selling insurance for so-and-so. And he said, there was no difference. They looked at me with respect and admiration and all that sort of stuff. And he said, when I introduced myself as Joe, the pastor, he said, I could see this wall. He said, I literally saw people's eyes. And he said, it went, Boom, <laughs> and they just shut down. They treat me mm. differently and they'd have different expectations. And the problem with, with the pastor's loneliness is that you don't know who to trust. You know, my, in my church in California, I had wonderful people that came around me and protected me and would take a bullet for me. And I didn't have to worry about confidences being betrayed or somebody gossiping about me or something like that. When I went to the church in the Midwest, it was a completely different story. I didn't know who I could trust. I didn't have people outside of my family. I didn't have people that I could just let my hair down and be myself. All, all those things, Jules, is just a different kind of dynamic for a pastor. When you're when you're that when your church is your family and you've got so much invested in that, who do you trust? And so many times pastors don't know who they can trust. They don't have somebody that'll take a bullet for them. Maybe that's too much of a militant kind of term now. No, it totally. And you know, I, I I appreciate you bringing that to my attention because I think yeah, I could see where I think okay, that's my pastor, and I'm not really just letting him be him or whatever. All right. So you said that, um, coping mechanisms, that is the key. Um, these are all the stressors, the common themes, but then how you deal with it impacts your ministry. There are, there basically these folks that uh, in the study gave me 11 coping strategies. And one of those was uh, leadership development. You've got to make sure you're developing people, discipling people around you that will help share the load. There's too many pastors that are Lone Ranger pastors, and you've got to have help. you got to have Tonto. It's Laverne and Shirley, you know, uh, Lucy and Ethel. you got to have somebody to help you bear the load. Secondly are relationships. You've got to develop relationships in your circle of friends or even outside. One of the things that helped me uh, here in South Carolina is uh, shortly into my pastorate, I met a guy by the name of David Ward and he had what was called pastor advisory council. And it was a plate. He invited me to come. And once a month I'd meet with a group of pastors and for five, six, seven hours, we could sit there and talk and vent. We could get mad. We could laugh. You could be human. (laughs) Yes. We could exchange ideas. We could just, it was so refreshing, Jules, to be able to have a group of guys that I could be with and just be myself. And we had a covenant with each other that everything was confidential. You weren't going to use somebody for a sermon illustration. You weren't going to talk about them. You're not even going to tell your wife about what went on in that meeting. And that's, that's what guy, pastors need. We need people where we can go and vent and just be ourselves, go out and play golf and be able to throw your golf club in the pond and not have to worry about, you know, somebody saying, Hey, the pastor lost him on the golf course today. You know? Yeah. Uh, 
Thirdly, there's the divine call. Every single one of those pastors, despite what they experienced, they could point to a time when they knew God called them into the ministry. And when you're going through those deep valleys, you've got to be able to know God called me here. I'm not here by mistake. Uh, also prayer. You've got to have a daily time of prayer where you're, it's not praying for your church. It's praying about yourself and your needs and God deepening your spiritual walk. Another one is scripture, not sermon preparation. It needs to be a time when you're reading the Bible for your own well-being. Exercise is critical. I mean, this guy that was uh, having a suicide issue, when I talked to him about exercise, he said, well, I got to drive to the, to the uh, gym. That's 30 minutes. Then I work out for an hour. That's another hour. Then 30 minutes, I got to get showered and then drive back to the office. That's two hours. Listen, Jules, he said, that's two hours I could be doing something else, right? But we've got to be able to have some kind of stress relief, obesity, hypertension, de uh, depression. They are all higher than the national average of the population. Wow. Pastors have higher instances of all those. So which best fits your schedule? You know, to exercise one hour a day or being dead 24 hours a day. You know? Yeah. You need to have a day off. Every pastor and the people in your con in the congregations need to understand the pastor needs a day off. When you when you enjoy Memorial Day weekend, Labor Day weekend, you get your three-day weekend, right? You realize a pastor never gets a three-day weekend because he's having to work in the middle of it. He's got church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And all those responsibilities on top of getting ready for Sunday on Saturday. And then usually a special Memorial Day picnic for the church. And yeah, you yeah. get the nail on the head. Uh -huh. So if a pastor is going to take that one of those days off, he's got to take a vacation day, right? So pastors don't get you know, a lot of people think, well, the pastor just works one day a week. just got to throw a sermon together and all. I mean, that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So guard your pastor's day off. You've got to have family support. Just like I told you about the church in, in the Midwest, when I knew my family was crumbling and I was in trouble, it was time to get out of Dodge. But when I, when we were out in California and the family was, we were all excited, involved in the ministry and the kids were being loved and my spouse was being loved. There's nothing like it. It's just absolutely fantastic. And then you need to have retreats, whether that's, a vacation or going on to a conference or uh, something of that nature. Do you realize, uh, Jules, in one study at Duke University, half of pastors take two weeks off, take less than two weeks off a year. You know, there's a lot of people that work in places and they, they're, they're able to accumulate their vacation. They can take four weeks yeah. and they can get paid for that when they leave, the, leave their uh, job and they get reimbursed for that in their sick days. They don't do that for pastors. In fact, one pastor in this Duke study hadn't taken a vacation in 18 years. Now that's on the congregation. That's not only on the pastor, that's on the congregation. That's the people taking advantage of a good man that they didn't want him to leave. They didn't want to miss, have him miss going to the hospital or doing somebody's funeral. That's completely unfair and unjustified. And finally, using a counselor. Uh, I went through a traumatic experience uh, about nine years ago, 
and uh, I sucked it up and went to a counselor. A lot of times pastors don't want to go to counselors because there's a stigma attached to that. I was able to, that, that was one of my saving graces for three months. I went to a counselor every week and I was able to pour my heart out to somebody that gave me in, input and feedback and helped me get through this very difficult time. And congregations, if the insurance won't pay for a counselor, congregations ought to pitch in. And whether it's marital counseling or personal counseling, family issues, you know, if you've got, sometimes pastors have kids that go off the rails. And it'd be nice if they could go to a counselor that could give them guidance. And if the church will rally to that pastor and family instead of criticizing them and tell them, well, you know, your, your kids are messed up, so you need to leave and resign. Uh, we need to show grace to pastors. Well, Bill, if somebody is finding themselves in a toxic congregation like you did out West, what should be their very first step? One of the first things is they've got to be able, hopefully they've got uh, a bishop or a district superintendent or a director of missions, somebody that they can talk to. When I went through my crisis a few years ago, that's the first thing I did. I went to my director of missions and was telling him what was going on and uh, trying to get some direction from him everybody's going to have somebody above them i mean you know in the southern baptist we have directors of missions they're not really above us but they're there to help us and if you're in a wesleyan church or methodist or something like that you've got bishops or district superintendents they can help you and uh, they can give you direction or if you've got some close confidants you know like when i met david ward uh, that invited me to be part of this pastor advisory council You've got close friends like that that can advise you and, and help you, especially when you're emotionally distraught. That helps you get your equilibrium back. And then what about us, the people who are sitting on the pews on Sunday? What can we be doing differently to love our pastors? Man, that is a great, great question. When I cleaned out my office a couple of months ago, Jules, after I retired, I'm sentimental and I save notes and letters and things like that. And it took me a long time to clean out a lot of the thank you notes that I had gotten from people in my congregation. And that's priceless. I mean, when you, everything from little kids, I had uh, times when the uh, children's department for Pastor Appreciation Month, they would send me. Uh, they would create little cards that say, we love our pastor. I had people that always remembered my birthday. They remembered my, the church remembered my anniversary. They would always give me a gift for the anniversary of when I came to the church, Christmas, things like that. I would always get gift cards and presents and things like that. I had a couple here at this church that always made sure I had a present to open on Christmas morning. And uh, then it's, it's just, uh, taking you out for lunch, not asking you to do something, but taking you out for lunch or a meal, just asking you to just come on, relax. We're just going to go play golf or go fishing or do whatever. Uh, just little things like that, that let you know that people care about you. And then other things like when somebody's critical, when you've, I, I've, I've had people in my church here in, uh, in Cowpens, where I had people that intercepted others. I knew they did that because of, of what they told me. Somebody's gonna be critical. Somebody uh, you know, had it in for me and I had somebody else that was a shield 
and defended me. And that, Jules, is absolutely priceless. Hmm. When you wrote this book and you were doing the research, obviously it was pre-COVID, pre-mask, online, as in person, you know, do you do six feet? Do you shake hands? I mean, all the different things. We just thought it was um, conflict was, you know, having contemporary and traditional services. Now we're like, I feel like in the major leagues, right? <laughs> with conflict. Uh, what has been the feedback um, on your book with pastors? Uh, I have really been humbled by uh, the response. And uh, I recently got an email from a pastor here in South Carolina that uh, he posted a review on my books available on Amazon, by the way. And um, he posted a review on Amazon and he said he was going through a dark place and he'd read other resources, but he said, this is the best book, the most practical book that he had read for helping a pastor that was going through stress. And uh, I've really, really have appreciated that. I had a, a district superintendent, a Westland district superintendent, uh, out in California that ordered uh, books for all of the people, all of the pastors in his district. So that those kinds of responses have just been uh, great. Mark and Sheila Bagwell, they have a ministry to pastors, uh, Shade Tree Ministries uh, here in South Carolina, down in Seneca. And uh, they, they wrote a great review uh, for the book. So uh, the feedback has been all positive, and I'm very grateful for that. Hmm. Well, I appreciate uh, you meeting with me on Zoom, letting me drink my coffee, even though you're not a coffee person. (laughs) (laughs) I've been guzzling it (laughs) as we talk. Um, But before I let you get on out of here, I wanted to see maybe if you would spend some minutes talking to the pastor who is about to walk away from the calling that God's placed on his life um, because it's just too much. Can I give you a, a personal illustration of how to, how to do that? I, uh, years ago, I started running back in the eighties when I was putting on weight. And, uh, so I've run five K's and many marathons and all that sort of thing. And so I wanted to challenge myself, uh, to run a, a marathon. And, uh, so I had to train for that. And, uh, then once I did that, I wanted to do an ultra marathon and, I was going to do that up in Chicago. So I signed up for it. I had to drive about four hours up to Chicago, stayed at some friend's place and then had to get up early in the morning to get down to, for the race. And the race took about five and a half hours for me. I mean, it was a long, long race. And, uh, I thought I was going to be exhausted when I got back. But for some reason, Jules, I got in my car, drove four hours back home. And I thought, well, I'm going to take a nap. Well, I didn't even, I wasn't even sleepy. So I, we were going to take down the wallpaper in my daughter's uh, bedroom. So I started going up and taking down the wallpaper <laughs> and did that. I did that for the next couple of days. I wasn't the least bit tired. And then by Thursday, the race was on Saturday. By Thursday, I crashed. And for like three days, I could barely get out of bed. I couldn't even hardly function. Well, what I found out is there's such a condition called stress-induced analgesia. And what that does, the endorphins in your brain are acting like an anesthetic on your body. So when I was running, first of all, I was emotionally invested in that race to be mentally ready to be able to run that race. And I was so juiced from that, and the endorphins had so flooded my body 
that I wasn't tired. I was able to continue to power through everything that was happening. But Jules, that the endorphins and the adrenaline have a limit. And when you run out of that, you crash. Well, the same thing happens in pastors. We can have ministry-induced analgesia. I can do one more meeting. I can make one more house call. I can go visit this person. I can handle one more meeting. And we do that, and we get this adrenaline rush, but then we crash. And we got to be able to recognize when that crash is because that's when we get short with people. That's when we get angry. That's when we say things we regret. Maybe somebody gets into pornography or they get into drinking. They self-medicate with all these different things. And that's not the way to handle that. You've got to be able to recognize when you're in that phase of ministry-induced or stress-induced analgesia that you've got to have help. You've got to ask. Stay on your knees in prayer. You've got to be reading your Bible. You've got to be able to have some friends that you can talk to to talk you through this so that you don't quit your ministry, so you don't leave your spouse, so you don't go do something stupid that in a moment of passion or idiocy, you're going to regret. I, I, love, I just know that there is somebody right now listening, um, either, like I said, what, like me on the pew, this realizing we need to love our pastors better, um, or there's somebody that's in the ministry that's saying, yeah, I'm drowning. I need help. And if somebody is feeling that way, um, Bill's contact information will be on the show notes. Um, the link to the book, uh, Clergy Stress Causes and Cures, is also in the show notes link. So get a copy of the book. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jules. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for joining us for this Jules Show podcast. You can find Bill's book, Clergy Stress, Causes and Cures, on Amazon. And you can follow Bill on Instagram at B underscore Westaf. That is B underscore W-E-S-T-A-F. You can find a full archive of The Jewel Show podcast at thejoyfm.com.